For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. The book of Romans in our New Testaments, chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. The word gospel in our Bibles just means good news. NLT translates it that way. And thus we begin the majestic book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. This is a letter from Paul. It's the longest letter in the New Testament. It's the most complete letter in the New Testament because it was written by Paul to the church at Rome. This is a church he had never been to. He'd been trying to make it over to Rome. He was not able to get over there for reasons that we'll talk about tonight. But he did have some friends who were living there who were part of this Christian community in the city of Rome. This group probably started all the way back when the church started in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost in 33 AD when they were pilgrims from Rome and all other parts of the Roman Empire there in Jerusalem. They became Christians and they went back to their, their hometowns and they told people about this new relationship with Jesus Christ, this new forgiveness, this, holy, this new work of the Holy Spirit. And so um, his church had probably been around for 25 years by the time Paul gets around to writing this letter in, in some form or another, but um, he had never been there. He had friends who were living there. They were part of this community, like Priscilla and Aquila, who we met um, back when we studied 1 Corinthians. They're back now living at Rome, and they, they and probably others were sending reports to Paul about problems they were having. They were also probably talking about how Paul's teaching was being misrepresented in the city of Rome and in the churches that were, were planted there. And so Paul, he writes, you know, to the largest and the most influential city in the Roman Empire, he writes the largest and probably the most influential letter in the New Testament, where he lays out his theology from A to Z to a church that had misconceptions about it and had never had, really, he had never been able to sit down and lay out the whole thing. And so he really puts the time in to write this letter. And, you know, this, the letter to the Romans, it's about, the, the main theme is the good news, the righteousness of God that we will talk about tonight. It's no wonder that theologians are raving about this book. John Stott says, this is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It's not surprising that the church in every generation has acknowledged the importance of Romans. Yes, this book God has worked in many ways through history, and some of the greatest movements, some of the greatest changes God has made in human history have been through people who are impacted directly by the book of Romans. I want to take some time just to talk about this before we get into our passage tonight, where we're going to study the whole introduction, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Um, I want to look at three individuals who were profoundly impacted by the book of Romans, who've had a huge impact in the history of the church and the history of Western civilization. Here's one. Anybody recognize this guy from around 400 AD? Augustine of Hippo. Very famous theologian, has gone on to become one of the most influential theologians, maybe the most influential theologian in the history of Christianity. Some people would say that about him. He's still quoted and read today, 1,600 years later, but he wasn't always um, even a follower of God or even a believer in God or even a Christian. Um, he grew up 
Um, very, he had a Christian mom, but it was very far from God. Lived the party lifestyle as much as you could do back in the 300s AD. Um, and he went on to uh, become a scholar, and he was, he was teaching rhetoric in Milan, Italy, when he sat under the teachings of a very famous preacher named Ambrose. And after a couple years of conversations with Ambrose, Augustine says he, he felt like he wanted to come to Christ. He wanted to receive the forgiveness that is available through God. But he just couldn't bring himself to do it. There was some sort of a block in the way. He says, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden, he wrote later in his book, Confessions, which is his autobiography. It says, where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. He's wrestling here. This is years of agony culminating. He says, I was twisting and turning in my chains. It feels like that. You feel the shackles. You want to be free, and God promises freedom. He says, I threw myself down under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. But suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting. It, was a, it sounded like a little boy, he said, was chanting, take up and read, take up and read. He ran back to where he had, had left his stuff and he picked up the scroll that was lying there that he'd been reading and that scroll was the book of Romans. And it says he began to read the book of Romans until he reached a certain point where he says, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, as I was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. We see the power of the word. We see it unshackling him. We see, after years of struggle, his struggle finally being released in the book of Romans, wrestling with his own sin, wrestling with his own doubt, and self-loathing was released through reading the book of Romans. What about this guy? Anybody recognize him? German, pretty obviously. Martin Luther. Martin Luther shows up on, if you look at lists from the most influential people of the second millennium, Martin Luther is usually number one. He's in the top four of all the ones that I looked at. This guy was pretty influential. He was the son of hardworking German peasants from a lower class family. And uh, he grew up, he was very smart, and he was studying to be a lawyer. He was going to be his family's ticket out of poverty. And yet, he had a sensitive conscience. And I think we know that a, being a lawyer and having a sensitive conscience are not a very good combination. Well, he had this near-death experience where um, he, thought, he thought he was going to die, and he just called out to God, God, please save me, I'll, I'll, I'll become a monk. He was already feeling pretty guilty and was thinking about becoming a monk anyway. And so, after that experience, he dropped out of law school and became a monk, joined a monastery. And Bainton says, to the monastery, Luther went like others, and even more than others, in order to make his peace with God. He wrestled with a constant sense of guilt, knowing he was not good enough. He started doing six worship services per day in the monastery. He writes, I tortured myself with prayers, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. I almost fasted myself to death. I was very serious about it. <laughs> this harsh treatment took its toll on his body. He would actually live the rest of his life with severe um, intestinal issues. He had trouble with his... Um, with his intestines, it's, it's a condition the Germans call far from pooping. 
And so he spent a lot of time in the, uh, in the restroom for the rest of his life. One year into his time in the monastery, it was the big day. He was going to lead his first church service. This, so he actually, his parents were really mad that he quit law school to become a monk. And so, but he finally invites him out to his, you know, thing. It's like when you invite your parents to your, your first big performance or whatever. And he gets up front and he freezes up. He says, I thought to myself, who am I that I should even lift my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? He was overwhelmed with a sense of the righteousness of God. God is so perfect. I am so small in comparison to him. He completely locked up and botched his first church service. And his parents were there too, so it was doubly embarrassing. Afterward, they were having the little lunch, you know, with donuts and stuff that you do after church. And he walks up to his dad in front of everybody and he's like, so dad, are you proud of me now? You've seen what I'm doing? Well, this was his dad, Hans Luther. And in front of everyone, his dad said, no, I am not. You are a failure. Haven't you read the Bible? It says, honor your father and mother. And now you've left us here in poverty, starving to death. Well, Luther redoubled his efforts. He says, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. He stood out heads and tails above the rest of his monk class. Yet, Bainton writes, all such drastic methods gave no sense of inner tranquility. The purpose of his striving was to compensate for his sins, but he could never feel that the ledger was balanced. He always knew he wasn't good enough. He could not satisfy God at any point. Sometimes my confessor said to me when I repeatedly discussed silly sins with him, yes, he would go to confession for hours a day. His fellow colleagues were getting really tired of it because they had to listen to these confessions. One of his confessors, they would say, you're a fool, God is not angry with you. But I think you are angry with God. You're trying so hard, you're angry with him. Angry with him, trying to be good enough. Angry with him for his high standard. He went to his mentor, Johann von Staupitz, who said, look, Luther, relax, love God. And Luther said, love God? I hated him. He admits his real feelings toward God to his mentor. And so his mentor, he just couldn't relate to Martin. He thought just he was being too uptight, you know, like your bar is way too high. You know, it's like you're trying to be perfect or something. Like you could be perfect like God. And so... They didn't know what to do, so they, they did the only thing they could think of to extinguish young Martin's spirit. He sent Martin to go get his PhD. <laughs> and then they got him a job as a Bible professor. And at that job, he began teaching through books of the Bible verse by verse to his students. And he had his eyes open to what the Bible really said. And then he reached the book of Romans. And when he reached the book of Romans, he reached the verse... That's the last verse in our passage tonight, Romans 1.17, where it says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It says, In the good news that I have for you, it fully reveals the righteousness of God. He's so perfect. He's so glorious. All have fallen short of his standard. Which doesn't sound like good news. And it wasn't good news to Martin. And then it says, It's a righteousness that's by faith from first to last. 
A righteousness not by works, but by trust, trusting God. That's the way to God's righteousness. It's not that I can perform the righteousness of God, but that I trust in him and I receive the righteousness of God is the message of the Bible and the clear message of the book of Romans. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And it says, Martin says he, he wrestled with this verse. He wrestled with this concept of the righteousness of God. The righteous will live by faith. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing stood, stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. And he wrestled and wrestled until he had what theologians call his tower experiences. His office was up in this tower and also in the tower there was this bathroom that he spent a lot of time in. And he says explicitly, he says, I was on the privy when God revealed this to me. In one of his, one of his writings, he says, night and day I pondered and until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. God makes us right as we trust in him by mercy. He says, and thereupon when I finally broke through, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Luther went on again. This is a, a decade, two decades struggle here that was finally released as he came to grips both with the righteousness of God and the mercy of God brought together through trust in the book of Romans. One final one, this guy here, British, apparently, John Wesley, 1700s. John Wesley, this was a guy who founded the Holy Club at Oxford when he was there. They would go around doing good deeds all over the place. He sailed to America in 1935, 1735 to work as a pastor with the pilgrims there. But he was nearly killed in a violent storm on the way over. But he, and, and he knew something was missing. He, he called himself a Christian, but he just knew he was hollow on the inside. He kept trying to be good, trying to be better. And in the, it was in this storm that he met this group called the Moravians. And they were also in this storm. And he could tell he was terrified of dying. And yet this group, the Moravians, they had joy. They had peace. They trusted God. They were to be thankful even in the midst of the storm, and they kept their composure, and that really stuck out to him. Well, after two years, he returned defeated from his time in America, um, and a year later, he visited a Moravian meeting in London, and he says, I went very unwillingly, but he had to check out what was it about these, this group, what was different here? And he's sitting there in one of their, their home churches, and what do they happen to be studying was the book of Romans. Not only the book of Romans, they were reading Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary on the book of Romans where he was talking about his experience, his breakthrough that he had, where he finally realized that how the righteousness of God can be mine. 
And he said, Wesley writes in his diary, he says, it was about a quarter before nine. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. It was like the fire of God had been lit within him. And I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. John Wesley, by the way, and and this is, again, after years of struggle, he finally has his breakthrough in the book of Romans. This guy went on to lead the Methodist revival, first in England and then in the United States. A house church planting movement that spread like wildfire across both countries, which paved the way for many social reforms, including the abolition of slavery throughout the world. The Methodist revival played a huge role and the eradication of that great evil. And so we see three major names from not just the history of Christianity, but the history of civilization. And all of them struggled for years in their, in their, in their relationship with God before finally finding the breakthrough, the relief in the book of Romans. And I wonder how many of us here may have an experience like that tonight or as we study through this book, where God finally breaks through to you after a struggle, maybe years of struggle. And you finally have that, have that assurance that he talks about here. Where you, the light of God finally comes on, the fire is lit within your heart, and you see the greatness, the justice of God, the righteousness of God on the one hand, and the mercy and love of God on the other hand. And you see them come together through trust in Christ. I have pretty high expectations for this book. Paul says, I was sent out to preach his good news. This was the good news that changed the life of the apostle Paul from a self-righteous Pharisee who says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. His credentials were impeccable, trained under Gamaliel, the greatest Jewish rabbi of his day. As to zeal, he had no match. And yet when he encountered the good news, it changed his life and he was able to finally admit, I'm not good enough and all all of my rightness I receive from God as a gift. He says, you know, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. Jesus Christ is at the center of the good news, the gospel. In his earthly life, Jesus was born into King David's family line and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. I actually want to come back to these verses at the end and talk some about the fulfilled prophecy and the resurrection of Christ, both of which confirm this news that seems almost too good to be true. Paul says it's through Christ that God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them. Yes, it wasn't just a message for the Jews anymore. It was also a message for non-Jews. And these apostles, people like Paul, were specially authorized to teach on this subject. So they'll believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you're included among those Gentiles who've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Many of us here have already been included among non-Jews who've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I know I certainly have. He says, I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called as saints. Saints just means holy ones. I love that verse because he says, 
the, what the gospel means is that now you're part of God's family. And God has a purpose for your life. And one of the main purposes is that you are now loved by God. Not you can someday earn his love if you're good enough. No, you're loved by God. And NLT says you're called to be his own holy people. It sounds like he's, you know, called you his own and now you've got to be good. No, it just says you're called saints. You're called holy ones. And so now when God looks at you, he sees no longer all of your, your record, your long list of sins or even crimes you've committed. No, he sees perfection like he sees his son. That's how God sees you. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. This is what God offers through his good news. Not just grace, but also peace. A peace with him, a peace with other people, and ultimately, peace within yourself will come from those things. And then he just gives a short little greeting here. He says, let me first say that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you, people who I've never met. Day and night, I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that'll help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you and your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. What prevented Paul from coming and visiting them? Well, there may have been a lot of things, but one that may have been a factor here was the Edict of Claudius. It's mentioned in Acts 18.2. It's later been confirmed by uh, excavations at places like Delphi. Um, Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome in 49 AD because there were these riots that, over some guy named Crestus, is what it says. I guess it's maybe Josephus who, who writes about this. Um, <clears throat> Apparently, there was, there was conflict between the Jews and the Jewish Christians in Rome because of this teaching about Christ. And things were getting pretty heated in Rome, just like they were getting heated back in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And so finally, Claudius says, all right, all Jews out of here. There was, they were anti-Semitic also, so they were maybe sort of looking for a reason to, to kick the Jews out. And so Jews were expelled from Rome, which meant, you know, Paul didn't start his missionary journeys till 49 AD, which means he couldn't go to Rome once he started traveling. In fact, when he gets to Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth because they got kicked out of Rome because of this edict of Claudius. Um, well, by the time he writes the book of Romans, it's 57 AD, 56, 57, wintertime. And by then, in 54 AD, Claudius died, so the, the edict would have gotten repealed. And so by the time we write, he writes Romans in 56, 57, Priscilla and Aquila, they're back in Rome. They probably went back home once the edict was repealed. So we see this really cool uh, interlocking between the account of Acts and secular history and the book of Romans that perfectly, that it all fits together. It's cool when you find things like that in the New Testament. Anyway, Paul had been prevented until now, and he says, I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I've seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, the educated and uneducated alike. The Romans obviously were civilized, didn't get much more civilized than them. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome too, to preach, 
the good news. Because I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. Yeah. Paul says I'm not ashamed of it. Why would Paul be ashamed of the good news? Well, if you just think about it, you know, he becomes, he, he spends... He spends his life, devotes it to killing Christians, protecting what he thinks is the true faith after devoting his life to being as righteous as possible. And now he's admitting, I was wrong. We were all wrong. We can't be righteous enough. God is perfect and we're not. What does he say to his family? After failing out as a Pharisee, after rejecting the Pharisee life, what would he say to his Pharisee buddies? Guys, we're all wrong. I'm wrong. I'm not good enough. You're not either. His mentor, Gamaliel, who he would have been privileged to train under. He had suffered so much pain for opening his mouth. And when you get, when you get hurt for opening your mouth, it makes you not want to open your mouth. He had killed Christians and committed countless other atrocities, acts that would have been shameful. And yet Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the good news. Why? Because it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. Yes, Jesus went to the Jews first, and then the apostles went to Jerusalem. From there, they went out to the non-Jewish world. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is Luther's verse that we read. It's accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. Yes, quoting from the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was in a situation where Israel had been really unfaithful. And so God had said, if you guys aren't faithful to me, eventually I'm going to send someone in to conquer you. And so God says, okay, I'm going to send this neighboring country in to conquer you. And then Habakkuk says, wait, how can you send them? They're worse than we are. And God says, Habakkuk, you're thinking too much in terms of your own righteousness. He says, the righteous, as for the proud one, he says, his heart is not right within him. But the righteous person shall live by faith. We see in the Old Testament God communicating the real way to righteousness. From start to finish by faith, our, our Christian life starts by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we switch over and we're like, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to work really hard to be good. And the book of Romans doesn't just show us how we begin a relationship with God and why we need it so bad. It also shows us how walking with God and spiritual growth is all by faith as well. And we're going to spend several chapters in Romans studying those, that subject too. Well, this just seems too good to be true, this good news. The new, when the news is too good, there's got to be a catch. And how do I know this is really right? Well, this was Paul's point back at the very beginning of this chapter where he said, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And I'd like to talk about this a little bit. The good news is about his son. And in his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. What is he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about here is that there's an Old Testament in our Bibles that was all written by the Jews. Um, it was all written before the time of Christ. In fact, they were done writing 400 years fully in advance of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we have this collection of teachings about God, but one of the things that's in there is these prophecies. 
They explain how do we get into the mess that we're in and what is God doing about it and how will we know that this is God's plan. And from the very early first pages of scripture, we see God creates world, the world in a perfect state and yet we see a perfect world ruined by evil. This world is broken. And what God says is one day I will send the promised one to deal with this mess once and for all. This promised one is, is, is predicted in the very first pages of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3. And this promised one, he says, is very interesting, will be born of the seed of a woman. And so when we look for our salvation, that actually sort of narrows it down. Like, you know, the promised one is not going to be an animal. We're not going to have some sort of polar bear who will show up to save us or a bald eagle Um, It's not going to be an alien coming in from another planet. It's not going to be some sort of celestial being teleporting in. But the promised one will come from within humanity, will will rise up, will be be born to human human parents, or at least that's sort of interesting, actually. It says, will be the seed of a woman. Seed, the rest of Genesis, it refers to the male lineage, the father. But here he says, the promise will be born to the seed of a woman. What a mysterious promise. I wonder what he's talking about. But at least we know that the promised one is going to be a human, which really doesn't narrow it down that much. You can imagine every human that's ever lived gathered together. It might look something like this that stretches on as far as the eye could see. Any number of people here could raise their hand and say, I'm the promised one. No, I'm the promised one. And in fact, that's been what's happened throughout history. A lot of people have claimed to be the promised one. A lot of so-called messiahs. And so God needs to tell us more than just the fact that this is going to be a human. He narrows it to all humans, but then as we read through our Bible, we see God begins narrowing down the lineage of this promised one. Humanity will grow out to a certain size, and then God will say, you You are the one that the promised one will come through. And we see the first one of these in Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where he says, I'll make you a great nation, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham has several kids, but it's only one of them that's designated the promised one, a guy named Isaac, where God says, you should name him Isaac, and I will confirm my promise to him. It will be an everlasting promise or covenant. Isaac has two kids, we read in Genesis, but the promise will go through his son named Jacob, whose descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and all the families on earth will be blessed through him. Jacob has a lot of kids as well, but it's one of these children, the fourth-born, actually, son named Judah, is the one. And look at this one. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Huh. So we see the promise of a king here come when when Judah's blessing is mentioned. And it says that this scepter will stay with Judah until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, and all the nations will honor him. Well, another 800 years go by until Judah has a great, 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 great grandson named David. David is the second king of Israel. 
And God says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. We see an eternal king. We see an eternal reign promised. Somehow David is going to have a son who will sit on the throne forever? That's pretty weird. And then we read through the rest of the Old... Oh, then we read the Old Testament and we see that David starts writing these psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in these psalms... He starts predicting things that are going to happen to this great, 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 great grandson. It's almost like he, he'll kind of start seeing life through the eyes of his descendant. And so he writes in Psalm 16, he says, No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. So he says, I'm so glad you're not going to leave me in the grave and I, my, my body won't even rot. David died, he was buried, his body rotted away. This is him predicting. This is him seeing through the perspective of his great descendant. In Psalm 110, he has this vision of the heavens. And he starts out, he says, Yahweh, which is the name for God, said to my Lord, sit in a place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. And so David, he's talking about his descendant here. Scripture's clear on that. And he says, Yahweh said to my Lord, who could he be talking about here? Who is my Lord? He's different from Yahweh, and yet he's greater than David. But if he's a descendant of David, how is he going to be greater than David? Because his descendant was more than a mere human. In Psalm 22... This one's very impressive. This one, David just starts seeing things again through the perspective of his great, 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 great grandson, the promised one. And he starts out this psalm and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on Yahweh? Let Yahweh save him. Seems like he's been abandoned by God. He says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He's going through tremendous suffering here. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Huh. It's about, this is half a millennium before crucifixion was invented, by the way, that he's writing this. They've pierced my hands and my feet. This actually starts to sound pretty familiar. Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, shouted out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The people around the cross mocked and jeered at him. And they said, Oh, you rely on Yahweh, let Yahweh save you. His tongue is sticking to his mouth. He's asking for, for, for a little bit more liquid so he can finish saying what he needs to say. He says, I can count on my bones because he's naked. And he's naked because they've taken my garments among themselves and they're throwing dice for my clothing, which is exactly what was happening to Jesus Christ when he was hanging on the cross. He cries out, Yahweh, do not stay far away. You're my strength. Come quickly to my aid. And then suddenly, the entire tone of the psalm changes. He says, snatch me from the lion's jaws. And then verse 22, he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. He has been snatched from the lion's jaws. And he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. And this is why Jesus Christ died on the cross, so that we could become sons of God and so that he can look over at sinners 
who've rejected God, who've been cleansed by his grace, and he can say, brother, sister, I've waited so long to call you that. And now we can really truthfully say, you are my brother, you are my sister. This is the righteous love of God who sacrifices to such an extent, giving his one and only son so that we could be cleansed. David concludes, he says, our children will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Jesus on the cross at the end, he cried out, it is finished because he has done it. He has paid for sins. Now we can receive his forgiveness freely. David wrote some cool psalms, but it doesn't end there. We see this lineage tracing down through the kings of Israel. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but there's prophets punctuating this history along the way. Isaiah writes, the Lord himself will give a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and she'll give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Huh. What did God say back in Genesis 3? It's the seed of a woman. The promised one will come from the seed of a woman. How strange. A virgin conceiving a child? And then his name is going to be God is with us? What a strange prediction from Isaiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 6 says, A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor because he's wonderful and he helps us in our weakness. He's mighty God. He's a child who's born and yet he's called the mighty God. That's a term reserved for Yahweh alone. Everlasting father. He's eternal and he's our father. Prince of peace. He, he will bring peace between us and God. Didn't Paul say grace and peace be to you? His government and its peace will never end, and he'll rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David. Again, there we see the promise to David echoed and continued right on down. God has not forgotten his promise. Jeremiah, the time is coming when I'll raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, and this will be his name. Yahweh is our righteousness? Wait, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. David is going to have a son, and his name is going to be Yahweh is our righteousness? Doesn't that sound like Romans chapter 1? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's his righteousness given to us. Micah 5, he says, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephraim, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. That's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's why when the wise men showed up, they said, where's this promised one? They said, oh, check Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures say. A thousand years pass from King David, and then we see the pages of our New Testament begin with this sentence. Have you ever noticed this, Matthew 1.1? This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David. 
Matthew said, here he is. At long last, we've been waiting for him for so long. He's finally come. Jesus Christ. And Matthew gives the genealogy right down to Jesus. The Jews kept meticulous records of this because God said, watch for the Messiah. And so Jesus, he's living his life. He's performing miracles. And people are saying, could this be the son of David? And then he rides into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, like it's said that their future king will do. And people are shouting out, praise God for the son of David. He's finally here. And the Pharisees said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you realize what they're saying? And Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You can't stop this moment. We've been waiting for this for a thousand years. Creation is groaning for its redemption. And it's so close. And so when Paul writes, this was promised long ago through his prophets and he was born into King David's family line, there's a lot more theology behind that than appears at first glance. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in addition to the different miracles, 30 or so, that Jesus performed during his ministry, there was this final punctuation mark here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to go through all the evidence for the resurrection tonight, sadly. We spent some time on this at the end of our study in Luke. I don't have time to tell you about the... Oh man, there's too much to say. I can point you to some teachings that would be good for that though. Like the last teaching we did in Luke on the resurrection. But... I'd like to read a short quote, or well, about a page quote, from Geisler and Turek's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And in it, it's the end of their chapter on the resurrection. And they've given all the evidence for it, inside the Bible, outside the Bible, philosophical, historical. And they cite this debate between William Lane Craig and John Dominic Croshan. Croshan's a skeptic. Craig's a Christian. And Craig says, would there be anything, Dr. Croshan, that would convince you that Jesus was risen from the dead as a historical fact? Because if he was, then... What he said is true. And Croshan says, you know, well, and Croshan's like, you mean like if somebody had a video camera at the tomb on Easter morning and they saw him come out of there? And he's like, you know, if we had that, one has the right to say, I by faith believe God has intervened here. But it's a theological presupposition of mine that God does not operate that way. God is not a God that intervenes in history in any way. Which, he doesn't give any reason why that's a presupposition. If God set all of this in motion that we see, why can't he do a single miracle? If there really is a God, why can't he do a miracle like raise someone from the dead? Why can't he intervene in the world that he created? Krashen says, you know, I could imagine discovering tomorrow morning that every tree outside my house has moved five feet. That needs some explanation. I don't know the explanation, but I won't immediately presume a miracle. And so Geisler and Turek comment on this. And he says, of course, Kroshan doesn't speak for all skeptical scholars, but a majority of them deny the plain reading of the New Testament because they share his philosophical bias against miracles. It's not that historical evidence for the New Testament is weak. It's very strong. It's that they've ruled out miracles in advance. 
They arrive at the wrong conclusion because their bias makes it impossible for them to arrive at the right conclusion. Are you open-minded enough to consider the possibility God might be there? And if he really is there, why can't he intervene in history occasionally with miracles? And then they said, let's take a look at Krashen's final comment about the treason's yard moving five feet overnight. He says he wouldn't immediately presume a miracle. Well, neither would we because most events actually do have a supernatural explanation. Oh, sorry, have a natural explanation. We live in a world of science. We'll talk about science next week. And that natural explanation, they said, incidentally helps miracles stand out when they do occur. So it makes perfect sense to seek a natural explanation first. But does that mean we should never conclude that any event, such as trees moving, was a miracle? Let's suppose that Krajan's tree moving event occurred in the following context. 200 years in advance, someone claiming to be a prophet of God writes down a prediction that all the trees in one area of Jerusalem would indeed move five feet one night during a particular year. 200 years later, a man arrives to tell the townspeople that the tree-moving miracle will occur shortly. This man claims to be God. He teaches profound truths. He performs many other unusual acts that appear to be miracles. And then one morning, numerous eyewitnesses claim that the trees in Croshan's Jerusalem yard including several deep-rooted 100-foot oaks, actually moved five feet during the night, just as the God-man predicted. These eyewitnesses also say this is just one of more than 30 miracles performed by this God-man. And then they suffer persecution and martyrdom for proclaiming these miracles and for refusing to recant their testimony. Opponents of the God-man don't deny the evidence about the trees or the other miracles, but they offer natural explanations that have numerous fatal flaws. Many years later, after all the eyewitnesses are dead, skeptics offer additional natural explanations that prove to be fatally flawed as well. In fact, for the next 1,900 years, skeptics try to explain the event naturally, but no one can. Question. Given the context, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that the movement of the trees was supernatural rather than natural in origin? Of course. The context makes all the difference. And this is the case we have with the resurrection. It's not just that we lack a natural explanation for the empty tune, it's that we have positive eyewitness and corroborating circumstantial evidence for the resurrection miracle. All right, well, let's try to summarize what we've seen here tonight. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's powerful. It can save you. And it's for everyone who believes. It's inclusive and exclusive. Have you trusted Christ for your salvation? If so, it says your salvation is accomplished start to finish by faith. It begins by trusting him and you grow to be more like him by trusting him. This good news was predicted beforehand and confirmed through the resurrection. And so the question here is, do you want to unleash this saving power in your life? That's the question. As F.F. Bruce says, there's no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. What happened to Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and others launched great spiritual movements which have left their mark in world history. But similar things have happened, and much more frequently, to very ordinary men and women as the words of this letter came home to them with power. Yeah, we can talk about Luther and Wesley and Augustine, but... My life has been changed through the book of Romans. In fact, um, my parents grew up, they would say they were 
probably Christians, but um, sort of felt like they'd sort of matured beyond a need for God in their lives. And when they were in their early 20s, before I was born, they started going to a church for some reason that was teaching the Bible. And they were fascinated to hear the Bible taught verse by verse, like we're going to do through Romans. And then a couple in that church said, do you guys want to study the book of Romans with us? And so they sat down and they said that First week, the guy taught Romans chapter 1. The next week, his wife taught Romans chapter 2. And they said, so chapter 3, you guys are up next week. (laughs) And so they read it. They read some commentaries. And my dad was saying, uh, my mom was saying too, that it was just jaw-dropping what they started finding when they started really looking closely at this book. My dad said, I thought I was a pretty good person. I thought people were generally good. And then I read Romans and I saw we don't hold a candle compared to the righteousness of God. My mom said, you know, I, I knew I was a bad person. What I had never heard about was the love of God and the grace that he has for me. And their lives, they said, they've never looked back since. It's changed their lives forever, which affected me, obviously, because I was born the next year. And, you know, I can still remember sitting in my dorm room, My home church I started going out to at the time as a freshman, they were studying through the book of Romans, and I was blown away. And I would sit there on my bed at night, and I would just read the the pages of Romans. It's the most vivid early memory I have of reading through a book of the Bible and trying to trace its flow of thought. And God showed me his acceptance of me through that book. That was apart from my works, but it was completely through Jesus Christ. It's changed my life forever. That was the time in my life where I really decided to go for it. And um, I've never looked back since. Not perfect, of course, but transformed by his word. And so when F.F. Bruce says, similar things have happened and much more frequently to very ordinary men and women as the words of this letter came home to them with power, I can say from my personal experience, amen to that. And so he says, Let those who've read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading further. You've been warned. And that's Romans' introduction. We should probably wrap it up there. Let's spend some time in prayer. Yes, God, thank you that um, because of your grace, you can help us see things as they really are. You can help us see you as you really are, and we don't have to lower you down to... Our level, we don't have to lower your standard down as something that we can achieve, but you sent your son who perfectly achieved your standard and showed what you're really like and that he accomplished on the cross the salvation um, that has been completed on our behalf. And I thank you for that. I thank you for how you've opened so many people's eyes throughout the centuries through not just your word in general, by your spirit, but uh, through Romans in particular. And I pray that um, we would have an opening of the eyes as we study this book, God. And that you would give us, um, you would bolster our faith or give us faith for the first time. And that this would start a journey that, that goes from faith and continues on in faith and trust for the rest of our lives. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.